Please be seated. Our first reading this morning is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, verses 1 through 12. Feel free to read along from your Pood Bible. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead as far as Dan, all of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. The Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. He was buried in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his burial place to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired, and his vigor had not abated. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the period of mourning for Moses was ended. Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, because Moses had laid his hands on him, and the Israelites obeyed him, doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and the entire land. And for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view. We know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors of Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. One of the things that I usually do is make sure everything's in order in my sermon. I realize I didn't do that. (laughs) If anyone is in Christ, 
There is a new creation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to God's self. We are ambassadors for Christ. The upbeat nature of these individual verses actually contradicts the tense relationship between Paul and the Corinthians in the time of the correspondence. And if we place these verses back in context, we get a glimpse into something of how theology and life come together. At the time that Paul is writing 2 Corinthians, he apparently does not have the powerful presence and demeanor that the Corinthians expect. Paul appears to be a man that does not keep his word. We don't know this. I mean, we didn't share this in the the text, but he says he's going to come visit, and he doesn't come visit. And as we know, when a person's character is revealed by what they say and what they do, Paul's status as an apostle with Corinth's experience of him is not matching up. Paul's appeal for reconciliation arises out of a complex and messy human situation. Much as he desires the Corinthians to be reconciled to God, Paul also earnestly yearns for some kind of reconciliation between the Corinthians and him. I suspect Paul recognizes that what goes on in human communities and how we relate to one another has implications on how we relate to God. It is not just about us, nor is it just about God. It is about how we understand ourselves to be in relationship with God and with one another, all in the same moment. The two are linked. A few years ago, the New York Times featured portraits from photographer Peter Hugo in a series called Rwanda 20 Years. Hugo, who went to Rwanda Two decades after nearly a million people were killed during the country's genocide, captured a series of unlikely stories. The pictures were part of a larger project that helped victims and perpetrators find forgiveness and reconciliation. It's clear from the pictures and from the stories that there's varying degrees of reconciliation. These people can't go anywhere else. They have to make peace, Hugo explained. Forgiveness is not born out of some airy-fairy sense of benevolence. It is more out of a survival instinct, he continues. 
And yet the practical necessity of reconciliation does not detract from the emotional strength required of these Rwandans to forge it. And one portrait, the survivor and perpetrator stand stoically side by side. And the perpetrator shares, I burned her house. I attacked her in order to kill her and her children. But God protected them, and they escaped. When I was released from jail, if I saw her, I would run and hide. Then I started the reconciliation trainings, and I decided to ask her for forgiveness. To have good relationships with the person to whom you did evil deeds, we thank God. And the survivor responds, I used to hate him. When he came to my house and knelt down before me and asked for forgiveness, I was moved by his sincerity. Now if I cry for help, he comes to rescue me. When I face any issue, I call him. Christ has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Christ has entrusted the message of reconciliation to us. But what does that even mean? To coexist in harmony, to restore, to make friendly again. Representative John Lewis, a prominent civil rights activist before his election to the House of Representatives, told a story of reconciliation that was decades in the making. In May of 1961, Lewis was beaten into a pool of his own blood in South Carolina for entering a whites-only waiting room. Nearly 50 years later, in 2009, he was visited by the man who attacked him. The man, now in his 70s, accompanied by his son, said, Mr. Lewis, I am one of the people who beat you and your seatmate. I'd been a member of the Klan. I want to apologize. Will you accept my apology? Will you forgive me? And tearfully, Lewis did. Christ has entrusted the message of reconciliation to us. But reconciliation is more than just forgiveness. It is a turning toward what we fear most. It is navigating a way forward. It is finding a way forward when we thought there was no way forward. 
And this isn't always in big, sweeping, powerful moments, like the stories that I just told you about Rwanda or Representative Lewis. Reconciliation can be one of the hundreds of movements forward that happen every single day. Like waking up in the morning and looking at your partner and saying, I choose you again today. Or maybe it looks like being reconciled with yourself about your own body image or illness or the insecurities that we all hold. Or maybe it's just being reconciled to the realities that maybe life is just difficult right now. And you're just going to allow yourself to sit in the mud and muck and feel all of it for a little while. Reconciliation it is, a, is a decision to choose life. And I think it's for this reason why Paul believes that how we relate to one another has implications for how we relate to God. Because in Christ we are a new creation and we have life. Jesus came to bring life and to bring it abundantly. To show us that we can move in this world with courage, facing our fears as he faced his and learning that death does not have the final word. So every time we choose reconciliation, in whatever form, big or small, we are confronting our fears of the other, of the unknown. We are choosing life and believing that there is something beyond what we could imagine and that it is life-giving. I think it's also important to note that reconciliation is an ongoing process. First, because as humans, we will always have opportunities for reconciliation. Because we aren't perfect. And undoubtedly, we will continue to hurt ourselves and others. But further, I think the process of reconciliation looks a lot like the fluid process of grief, where there are stages, and the stages don't move linearly, which really stinks because you think that you're doing really well, and then you realize you're not. And I find it, I imagine it looking a lot like a child scribbles, right? Like just scribbling, and, which is really endearing, but not usually very aesthetically pleasing. Several years ago, I officiated a wedding for a former student of mine from Barton College. They were a young lesbian couple. And one of the brides desperately wanted her dad to walk her down the aisle. And as the wedding drew closer and we were tweaking the ceremony, I I was asking about logistics, like, what is he going to do? Is he going to walk you down the aisle? And she would sadly respond with, I don't know. 
And we were at the rehearsal the day before the ceremony, and I asked again, is your dad going to walk you down the aisle? And sadly, she said, no, but my brother is. And while thrilled that she found solace, that her brother was going to walk her down the aisle, I was also brokenhearted for her. And on the wedding day, I saw that her dad was present. And word got back to me that he was going to walk her down the aisle. Having not been present at the rehearsal, I went to talk with her dad about the logistics, about what was going to happen and the trade-off and all of that. And honestly, he seemed annoyed and frustrated to be there. Which made me annoyed, honestly. Why show up? I thought if you're just going to be a curmudgeon about it all. If you're just going to be negative, why show up? And the ceremony happened, and he walked her down the aisle, and he looked extremely uncomfortable, and the wedding was gorgeous, and I was annoyed at his annoyance. And it wasn't until I was driving away that it all clicked. Here I was, making a harsh criticism of this man, wondering why he would show up to his daughter's wedding if he was just so uncomfortable, why he would go through the motions if he was struggling to the point of physical discomfort. And then it clicked. He showed up. He showed up. He didn't get it. He didn't understand that his only daughter fell in love with another woman. He was probably scared for her and how maybe society might treat her. He was unwrapping himself from all that he had imagined that her life would be like. But he showed up. He knew he didn't want to miss this moment. And that's all that mattered. And in that moment, his willingness to show up was movement toward reconciliation. It wasn't necessarily complete. Maybe it was the first of many steps and a lot of continued conversations. But it was the step in the process of some level of reconciliation. It was a step forward. Like so much of life and our faith, none of this is ever complete. Like reconciliation, perhaps we find ourselves somewhere in the process. I think about Moses, who didn't get to see the promised land. The next generation had to pick up where he was leaving off and take the next steps. I consider the transformation process that this congregation is moving through as it formally moves into phase two. But knowing deep down the transformation process is never complete. It is always ongoing. I think about Jesus' words. The poor will always be with you. 
And I imagine us as a congregation and as individuals, as people of faith, rolling this big boulder up a hill, a hill that we will never make it to the top. And I wonder why. Why do we keep rolling this big boulder up the hill? Because we're never going to make it to the promised land. It's futile. But that's not what this is about. It isn't always a matter of effectiveness. This is a matter of faith. No person has gotten to the end of their life and said, well, I've got this love thing all figured out, so you don't have to worry about it, next generation. We can't always measure our progress. Or the progress is excruciatingly slow. And too often in society that focuses on effectiveness, we choose easier tasks that are measurable so that we can feel better about ourselves and have a sense of completion. But we are on a journey. Can you imagine if that is how God measures our success? Based on our effectiveness? Sure, we might have some good days, but too often I've left church feeling really, really good only to lose my temper headed home in traffic. <laughs> That's not how the gospel works. Forgiveness isn't about being deserving. Reconciliation isn't about being deserving. Love is not about being deserving. And so we keep going. And we keep showing up. Because the work is never done. And we share the responsibility with each other. And we give where we can, when we can. And when we have strength, we give more to support those who do not. And so we come and we show up to work on ourselves and to work on our faith. And we continue to be the beloved community of God. And we give thanks for the unreserved grace-abounding reconciling love of God.